Welcome to the Speed Podcast. I'm with the pleasure of being with Donald Shelbourne. He needs no introduction and he's really an expert on the knee and was responsible for the accelerated rehabilitation after ACL injury. So we're at the Marriott Hotel at the Heathrow Airport. We've been part of the very successful Pain to Performance Conference run annually by Graham Smith. Donald, thanks a lot for being on the on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So let's begin with you telling us how you discovered this idea of accelerated rehabilitation when it was such a revolution. Well, back when I started practice in 1982, I understood at that time that my main goal was to try to develop uh, ways to make ACL outcomes better. And I had just spent a year doing a fellowship with Bill Clancy, and at that time he was one of the pioneers in bone tendon bone intraarticular ACL reconstructions, and at that time that was kind of a, a pioneer in that. So I went up and spent a year with Bill Clancy, and at that time it was a great operation, we thought, and I came back and started practice, and our rehabilitation at that time was pretty backwards compared to what we do now. We were putting people in casts at 30 degrees of flexion for six weeks, letting the bone plugs heal, taking them out, being slow on the rehabilitation. Um, I didn't realize how much the bone tendon bone heals so darn well. And instead of having good results, we were having stable knees in almost everybody, but we were having tremendously, incredibly stiff knees, not just stiff, but painfully stiff, lacking extension, lacking flexion. Uh, Up until I started practice, I didn't realize that the knee... When we were doing extra-articular procedures back in the 70s, we were doing medial and lateral extra-articular procedures. We were putting people in casts. We were hoping that the knee would get stiff. If it got stiff, these chronic ACL-deficient patients then would have a fairly stable knee, but it wasn't that great, but it was better than it was prior to surgery when they had chronic instability. So the stiffness part of the surgery for the extra-articular was beneficial, we thought. And when we added the intra-articular procedure, we figured we'd try to let the knee get a little bit stiff also. And the bone tendon bone graft turned out to be so fabulously successful as far as stability. And not only was good for stability, but it was unfortunately caused many people to have incredible stiffness that couldn't be resolved very well. And so you had to do some surgeries to release those ACL grafts really, didn't you? Well, what I thought at first is that when we had stiff knees that occurred after extra-articular procedures and we thought it was too stiff, we just used extension casts and just tried to stretch the stiffness out. And that worked pretty well. But with the intra-articular graft, we had a real problem in that I had never understood that the intra-articular ACL reconstruction potentially had the problem of not letting the knee fully extend because the graft was trying to replicate the old ACL and if we put in a graft that was too big to fit in the notch we didn't put it in anatomically and we didn't try to get the knee straight the graft could not only block extension but it could grow bigger and block extension and when I was trying to get these patients knees stretched out by doing extension casts I absolutely couldn't do it because there was some form of intra-articular doorstop in these patients knees preventing them from straightening their knee out. So what I had to do was I had to do an arthroscopy and a scar resection to get all this unwanted scar tissue out. It's a combination of scar tissue plus graft hypertrophy that was blocking extension in the notch. And I had never seen this problem or never heard of this problem. And it was kind of an eye-opener for me back in the mid-80s. And at that time, 
I sat down with my research department and said, you know, this is an unacceptable complication. I'm making these 15-year-old kids miserable instead of making them better. So although the surgery seems to work well, the complication was just unacceptably high and we had to do something about it. So we methodically tried to make the complication rate less and try to not let the stability go away. And that was step by step by step where we came up with the accelerated rehabilitation program in the late 80s. And just to put for our young listeners in context, there was a phase where people were putting these in plaster for quite a few weeks after. So if you just want to recap that, it'll be interesting for folks. And then tell us where we moved to as far as accelerated rehab goes. Well, back when I was starting practice, when we did extra-articular procedures, those were not anatomic. They were designed to try to hopefully let the knee get stiff. And we put people in casts with the hope of the cast allowing the knee to become stiff enough to be stiff stable. When we sent our patients to therapy after the extra-articular procedures, we knew that if their knee did not come to zero degrees of extension, we would probably maintain some degree of stiffness enough to be stable, stiff stable. If the patient ever got recurvatum back, the extra-articular procedure totally failed, so we were telling our therapists, whatever you do, don't let the patient's knees go past zero degrees. And that was to guarantee they had a chance of getting stiff stable. When we started adding an anatomic intraarticular ligament into the knee, we didn't realize that that ligament by itself was replacing the torn ACL. We did not need to do extraarticular procedures, but we had to get the graft to heal and the graft to fit. So we carried over the thing about putting the patient in a cast for six weeks to try to let the graft heal. When we did that, Patients had incredible amount of stiffness, and so we were trying to come up with a way to have the graft heal but not have the incredible stiffness. So in 1983-84, I ventured out of my comfort zone and took people out of a cast and put them in a removable splint at 30 degrees of flexion, hoping that they could come out of their splint for an hour a day, move the knee in a CPM machine, and maybe decrease the stiffness rate. And as I was doing that, I was monitoring the number of people that had arthrofibrosis, the number of people that got loose, and we were doing well conquering the problem of getting the patient's stiffness less and their stability still being maintained. Well, that was kind of the starting point for our accelerated rehab. We kept trying to eliminate stiffness while not losing stability. And we want to move on, but I just want to ask your opinion, please, about some surgeons still advocating for a lateral augmentation these days. What do you think about that? Well, the problem is that the bone tendon bone reconstruction has been labeled as the gold standard for ACL reconstructions, and it is, and we found that it is incredibly resilient to rehabilitation and still gives stability, and that's where the accelerated rehabilitation came in mind because we could not find something that we could do too aggressively getting motion back that would cause the graft to fail. In about 1994, uh, we kind of reached an impasse where we were having trouble rehabilitating ipsilateral patellar tendon grafts, and more and more people were doing outpatient ACL surgery, and there was more of a trend toward going to allografts and hamstring grafts, and rather than face the problem of the rehabilitation of the patellar tendon graft, a lot of people switched to hamstring grafts and cadaver grafts. I've stuck with patellar tendon grafts, but I started doing them from the contralateral side because we found better short and long-term results by doing this, but by doing the lesser grafts of the hamstring grafts and the cadaver grafts,
people have not been able to rehabilitate the patients as quickly as we could with the patellar tendon grafts. And they were also having trouble that the results of the hamstrings and patellar and uh, allografts were not near as good as the patellar tendon grafts. And there was a lot of residual instability problems developing. And rather than blame the graft, now there's a trend now of blaming the deficient anterolateral ligament. And so people are recommending to adding an anterolateral ligament reconstruction with hamstring grafts or cadaver grafts to combat the problem of these grafts not being predictably stable enough to give the person stability. With patellar tendon grafts, that has never been a problem. Our only problem with patellar tendon grafts has been rehabilitation at the donor site. And I think that's what people have chosen not to go with patellar tendon grafts because the donor site rehab is a big deal if you don't know how to address it. But we've addressed that by having every patient have their own therapist, taking the graft from the opposite side, doing preoperative rehabilitation. In my practice, we've solved the problem with not needing an extra articular procedure and not having donor site problems. Thanks a lot. And as we move forward, do you feel like commenting on Leo Pincheski's 20-year study of his ACL outcomes? He's a friend of yours and uh, he's a supporter of BJSM and um, he'll listen to this. So let's share some thoughts with our listeners. Well, Leo's done a great job. I visited Leo. Leo's visited me and we're kind of contemporaries. He, uh, back when I switched to the contralateral graft, had the same problem with ipsilateral patellar tendon grafts and rather than go to the contralateral patellar tendon, he went to the hamstring graft and has been very successful with doing that surgery and predictably having good results. He has also had a research department in place uh, just like I do, and his research people do a great job of following patients, and to his credit, I mean, Lucy, uh, who works with him, is like my tinker, and so Lucy's done a great job following people, and I have to commend Leo and his staff, because what they've done is incredible, and I don't think he gets enough credit for how difficult it is to follow people for as long as he has. To come up with the paper that he did with the 20-year follow-up is just an incredible compliment to he and his staff for being able to follow people for that long and to come up with the outcomes. And we've been doing the same thing, and when Leo's paper came out, I called him to see how I can complement his paper or add to his paper by doing my 20-year follow-up with patellar tendon grafts. And what were the main findings when you read it? Uh, The most important thing, at least in my uh, patients, were getting symmetric extension back and symmetric flexion. I think most orthopedic surgeons feel like they would rather have a little bit of stiff, stable knee like we did in the extra-articular days than to have full range of motion and risk the graft failing by getting full range of motion back. Well, patients may be able to tolerate less than full motion at one year, but in 20 years, it is really the main problem causing them to have long-term problems. And if you're 15 years old when you have the surgery and 20 years later, you have a stiff arthritic knee, now you're 35 years old. I think patients would rather have a loose knee with full motion and just have a little bit of sporting disability than to have a stable, stiff knee that leads to an arthritic knee at an early age. And I think that's kind of what Leo found, and that's what we're finding also, that full range of motion and stability is more important than stability with less than full motion. And, Don, we had the chance to chat about a few things last night, but we didn't talk about the sort of big elephant in the ACL room, which is the conservative management, the randomized trial that showed 
that people seem to do reasonably well if you didn't uh, have a reconstruction at all. Are you comfortable to talk about that for a bit? Well, I think in the way the world is right now with ACL reconstructive surgery uh, in the U.S., about half the people that have ACL surgery never make it back to the same sport at the same level despite having a stable knee. And so the doctors that are doing these surgeries are thinking that they're doing the right thing for their patient without looking at their outcomes. If you're not a high-risk athlete and if you're not looking to do high-risk sports like downhill skiing and soccer and you're out of college and you're, you're married with a job, in a way you're much better off having non-operative treatment because if the non-operative treatment doesn't work and you have instability, you can always correct it. If you're not a high-risk athlete or a high-risk person and you are convinced to have ACL surgery and you don't develop symmetric motion afterwards, you're probably worse off than if you never had the surgery. And I, I agree that non-operative treatment should be tried on most patients unless they're competitive high-risk athletes because you have nothing to lose because a stiff knee after the surgery although you have a stable knee, is a time bomb for the future. And so I think that people that are on the bubble, if they should have surgery or not, should not have surgery. They should prove if they should need it or not. And then if they need it, then you can justify the risks of surgery because they've been proven that non-operative treatment has not been successful. And before we leave the ACL and maybe have a brief chat about patellar dislocation, this issue of arthritis after surgery and rates of arthritis after ACL reconstruction, how do you see that field? The biggest problem is that people that have meniscus tears and chondral injuries that also don't get the range of motion back have the highest risk of developing osteoarthritis in the future. When I look at patients that don't have meniscus tears, don't have chondral injuries, but don't get all their motion back, they also have a much higher risk of developing osteoarthritis in the future, despite the fact that they had no other obvious risk factors. So when people have meniscus tears and chondral injuries and they go on to develop osteoarthritis, most orthopedic surgeons don't look at the concomitant loss of motion as a risk factor. And so as surgeons, then you think, I need to do something more with the meniscus tears. I need to do something more with the chondral injuries because I hope that by doing that, I might be able to prevent future osteoarthritis without knowing exactly why the future osteoarthritis happened. Because as orthopedic surgeons, we don't look at our job is to make sure the patient gets symmetric motion back. We tend to focus on meniscus tears and chondral injuries, which we feel like we can do something surgical with when we really have to understand that our job as overseers of the ACL patient is to do an operation that guarantees they're going to get symmetric motion back and then if they have stability on top of that, that's a bonus. Thanks a lot, Don. And um, I'm going to leave that one there, but don't go away because we'll record a separate quick podcast about patellar dislocation. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you. Thank you.